Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 12, Chapter 3. We are introduced here to the messenger Michaud. What's your first impression of him? Michaud doesn't speak Russian, and it doesn't seem like he had spoken with the sovereign before. Why would Kutuzov send Michaud as the messenger? And if the sovereign was right there at the moment when the decision was made to abandon Moscow, would he have agreed with Kutuzov's choice? Hmm. I think he I think he would be glad that he wasn't there you know I don't think he could agree with Kutuzov choice publicly but I also think he might secretly so he might be glad that it happened without him being there potentially who knows? Kara Kikar says, based on my experience with leaders and making hard decisions, I'm guessing the emperor wouldn't have been able to abandon Moscow so easily. His pride would have gotten in the way. Bashord is an interesting choice. I assume he is literary and not historical. I wonder if he represents a turning tide. Despite being French, he identifies as Russian and is patriotic uh, towards the fatherland even composing a dramatic reveal to flatter the emperor. Warren Kovacvifi says, Sometimes I feel like Tolstoy is teasing or straight-up mocking Alexander in this story. This chapter is the latest example with Alexander promising to become a potato-eating peasant if Russia loses the war. With Alexander's portrayal in previous chapters, I thought there's no way he'd actually follow through with such a thing. And that's all. That's all the conversation for that chapter. Not an overly ex- inspiring com- uh, conversation. I'm um, sorry. Nothing wrong with the conversation. I meant to say, not an overly inspiring chapter. Didn't inspire much conversation. Um, so let's continue and read chapter four, which goes exactly like this. It is natural. Wait, let me just check. Yeah, just making sure I'm reading the right chapter. It is natural for us who were not living in those days to imagine that when half Russia had been conquered and the inhabitants were fleeing to distant provinces and one levy after another was being raised for the defense of the fatherland, all Russians from the greatest to the least were solely engaged in sacrificing themselves, saving their fatherland or weeping over its downfall. The tales and descriptions of that time, without exception, speak only of the self-sacrifice, patriotic devotion, despair, grief, and the heroism of the Russians. But it was not really so. It appears so to us because we see only the general historic interest of that time and do not see all the personal human interests that people had. Yet, in reality, those personal interests of the moment so much transcend the general interests that they always prevent the public interest of from being felt or even noticed. Most of the people at that time paid no attention to the general progress of events, but were guided only by their private interests, and they were the very people whose activities at that period were most useful. Those who tried to understand the general course of events and to take part in it by self-sacrifice and heroism were the most useless members of the society, saw everything upside down and all they did for the common good turned out to be useless and foolish. Like Pierre's and Mamanov's regiments which looted Russian villages and the lint 
of the young ladies prepared and that never reached the wounded, and so on. Even those fond of intellectual talk and of expressing their feelings who discussed Russians, Russia's position at the time involuntarily introduced into their conversation either a shade of pretense and falsehood or useless condemnation and anger directed against people accused of actions no one could possibly be guilty of. In historic events, the rule forbidding us to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge is specially applicable. Only unconscious action bears fruit, and he who plays a part in an historic event knows, uh, sorry, never understands its significance. If he tries to realize it, his efforts are fruitless. The more closely a man was engaged in the events than taking place in Russia, the less did he realize their significance. In Petersburg and in the provinces at the distance from Moscow, ladies and gentlemen in militia uniforms wept for Russia and its ancient capital and, and talked of self-sacrifice and so on, but in the army which retired beyond Moscow there was little talk or thought of Moscow, and when they caught sight of its burned ruins no one swore to be avenged on the French, but they thought about their next pay, their next quarters, of Matryoshka, the Vivandir, and like matters. As the war had caught him in the service, Nicholas Rostov took a close and prolonged part in the defence of his country, but did so casually without any aim at self-sacrifice, and he therefore looked at what was going on in Russia without despair and without dismally racking his brains over it. Had he been asked what he thought of the state of Russia, he would have said that it was not his business to think about it, that Kutuzov and others were there for that purpose, and but that he had heard that the regiments were to be made up to their full strength, that fighting would probably go on for a long time yet, and that things being so, it was quite likely he might be in command of a regiment in a couple of years' time. As he looked at the matter in this way, he learned that he was being sent to Vorenz to buy remounts for his division, not only without regret at being prevented from taking part in the coming battle, but with the greatest pleasure which he did not conceal, and which his comrades fully understood. A few days before the Battle of Borodino, Nicholas received the necessary money and warrants, and having sent some hussars on in advance, he set out with post-horses for Varunz. Only a man who has experienced it, that is, has passed some months continuously in an atmosphere of campaigning and war, can understand the delight Nicholas felt when he escaped from the region covered by the army's foraging operations, provisions, trains, and hospitals. When free from soldiers' wagons and the filthy traces of a camp, he saw villages with peasants and peasant women, gentlemen's country houses, fields where cattle were grazing, post houses with station masters asleep in them. He rejoiced as though seeing all this for the first time. What, for a long time, while specially surprised and delighted him were the women young and healthy without a dozen officers ma making up to each of them women too who were pleased and flattered that a passing officer should joke with them in the highest spirits nicholas arrived at night at a hotel in varennes ordered things he had long been deprived of in camp and next day very clean shaven and in a full dress uniform he had not worn for a long time went to present himself to the authorities the commander of the militia was a civilian general, an old man who was evidently pleased with his military designation and rank. He received Nicholas brusquely, imagining this to be the characteristically military, and questioned him with an important air as if considering the general progress of affairs 
and approving and disapproving with full right to do so. Nicholas was in such good spirits that this merely amused him. From the commander of the militia, he drove to the governor. The governor was a brisk little man, very simple and affable. He indicated the stud farms at which Nicholas might produce, uh, procure horses, recommended to him a horse dealer in the town and a landowner 14 miles out of town who had the best horses and promised to assist him in every way. You are Count Ilya Rostov's son. My wife was a great friend of your mother's. We are at home on Thursdays. Today is Thursday, so please come and see us quite informally, said the governor, taking leave of him. Immediately on leaving the governor's, Nicholas hired post horses and, taking his squadron quartermaster with him, drove at a gallop to the landowner, 14 miles away, who had the stud. Everything seemed to him pleasant and easy during that first part of his stay in Varennes, and, as usually happens when a man is in a pleasant state of mind, everything went well and easily. The landowner to whom Nicholas went was a bachelor, an old cavalryman, a horse fancier, and sportsman, the possessor of some century-old brandy and some old Hungarian wine, who had a snuggery where he smoked, and who owned some splendid horses. In very few words, Nicholas bought seventeen picked stallions for six thousand roubles to serve, as he said, as samples of his remounts. After dining and taking rather too much of the Hungarian wine, Nicholas, having exchanged kisses with the landowner, with whom he was already on the friendliest terms, galloped back over abominable roads in the brightest frame of mind, continually urging on the driver so as to be in time for the governor's party. When he had changed, poured water over his head and scented himself, Nicholas arrived at the governor's rather late, but with the phrase, better late than never, on his lips. It was not a ball, nor had dancing been announced, but everyone knew that Catherine Petrovna would play valses and the ecossais on the clavichord, and that there would be dancing, and so everyone had come as to a ball. Provincial life in 1812 went on very much as usual, but with the differences that it was livelier in the towns in consequence of the arrival of many wealthy families from Moscow, and as in everything that went on in Russia at that time, a special recklessness was noticeable, an in-for-a-penny, in-for-a-pound-who-cares spirit, and the inevitable small talk, instead of turning on the weather and mutual acquaintances, now turned on Moscow, the army, and Napoleon. The society gathered together at the governor's was the best in Varennes. There were a great many ladies and some of Nicholas's Moscow acquaintances, but there were no men who could at all vie with the Cavalier of St. George, the Hussar Mount officer. The good-natured and well-bred Count Rostov. Among the men was an Italian prisoner, an officer of the French army, and Nicholas felt that the presence of that prisoner enhanced his own importance to, as a Russian hero. The Italian was, as it were, a war trophy. Nicholas felt this. It seemed to him that everyone regarded the Italian in the same light, and he treated him cordially, though with dignity and restraint. As soon as Nicholas entered in his hussar uniform, diffusing around him a fragrance of perfume and wine, and had uttered the words better late than never, and heard them repeated several times by others, people clustered around him, all eyes turned on him, and he felt at once that he had entered into his proper position in the province, that of a universal favourite, a very pleasant position, and intoxicatingly so after his long privations. At posting stations, at inns, and in the landowner's snuggery, maid servants had been flattered by his notice, and here too, at the governor's party, there were, as it seemed to Nicholas, an inexhaustible number of pretty young women, 
married and unmarried, impatiently awaiting his notice. The women and girls flirted with him, and from the first day the people concerned themselves to get this fine young daredevil of an hussar married and settled down. Among these was the governor's wife herself, who welcomed Rostov as a near relative and called him Nicholas. Catherine Petrovna did actually play valses and the Ecossais, and dancing began, in which Nicholas still further captivated the provincial society by his agility. His particularly free manner of dancing even surprised them all. Nicholas was himself rather surprised at the way he danced that evening. He had never danced like that in Moscow, and would even have considered such a very free and easy manner improper and in bad form, but here he felt it incumbent on him to astonish them all by something unusual, something they would have to accept as the regular thing in the capital, though new to them in the provinces. All the evening Nicholas paid attention to a blue-eyed, plump and pleasing little blonde, the wife of one of the provincial officers. With the naive conviction of young men in a merry mood, the other men's wives were created for them. Rostov did not leave the lady's side and treated her husband in a friendly and conspiratorial style, as if, without speaking of it, they knew how capitally Nicholas and the lady would get on together. The husband, however, did not seem to share that conviction and tried to behave morosely with Rostov, but the latter's good-natured naivety was so boundless that sometimes even he involuntarily yielded to Nicholas's good humour. Toward the end of the evening, however, as the wife's face grew more flushed and animated, the husbands became more and more melancholy and solemn as though there were but a given amount of animation between them and as the wife's share increased, the husbands diminished. Alright, there's a chapter for you. Nicholas has got his eye on someone's wife and he's in a bloody good mood. Alright, head over to the subreddit, have a chit chat and I will see you tomorrow.